You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by Professor David Barrett. He's a professor of political science at Villanova University and, among other things, the author of the very highly regarded book, The CIA and Congress, The Untold Story from Truman and Kennedy, which came out in 2005. Uh, we're here to discuss, actually, his latest book, which he co-authored with Max Holland. And just as an aside, many of you will recall that we recently interviewed Max Holland here at the museum in connection with his book on, on Mark Felt, also known as Deep Throat. Uh, but today, uh, the subject is going to be uh, Barrett and Holland's new book, Blind Over Cuba, The Photo Gap and the Missile Crisis. So, David Barrett, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Uh, thank you, Mark. I've been to the museum a few times. I love the place, and it's good to be here with you by way of Skype. Yeah, well, we're delighted to have you. Um, so, David, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis took place 50 years ago. Uh, which is quite a long time in American uh, uh, popular memory. So before we really jump into the, to the nitty-gritty of this fabulous book that you and, and Max Holland have written, maybe could you just give us a real quick thumbnail sketch of what the Cuban Missile Crisis was and why it was important for, for those who may not be deeply familiar with it? I'm happy to do that, and I have to say I've done that more than a few times because I teach courses to undergraduates uh, for whom this topic turns out to be ancient history because they were born during the Reagan presidency. Uh, Isn't that depressing? <laughs> it's a little shocking. Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis was one of the most dangerous points in the Cold War, which went on you know, for four or five decades, four and a half decades. And it came about in the aftermath of a couple of things. For one thing, early in the John F. Kennedy presidency in April of 1961, uh, the president had authorized the CIA to use Cuban exiles to try to overthrow Fidel Castro, the leader of Cuba who had pronounced himself a Marxist and had begun a close working relationship with the Soviet Union. Uh, needless to say, it failed. It embarrassed uh, President Kennedy. It, it, it scared the daylights, I think, out of Fidel Castro, who figured quite sensibly the Americans will be coming again. 
It concerned the Soviet Union. A decision was made by the Soviets that they would deploy missiles, uh, medium and intermediate range ballistic missiles in Cuba. They would be equipped with nuclear warheads so that the Soviet Union, one could argue that this would provide a kind of a defense for Cuba, but also it would give the Soviet Union the chance, should they wish to do so, to attack uh, the uh, U.S., where the missiles would be arriving, you know, faster, more quickly, giving the U.S. less response time. So they did this in secret. Um, the U.S. in the summer of 1962, President Kennedy and others in Washington knew that uh, something was going on in Cuba, that men and materiel were coming in. But we were actually, you know, to some real degree, caught by surprise in the middle of October. Uh, in discovering that there were the missile sites being built, and an assumption was made quite reasonably that there were accompanying warheads. And so then the Soviet, the, the U.S., I'm going to give you the very shortened version of this, the U.S. insisted to the Soviet Union, these missiles, these warheads must come out. There was a famous 13-day period between the U.S. and the Soviet Union where they sort of had this the struggle of diplomacy and sort of showing off their their military, you know, giving certain military signals uh, ultimately, uh, the Soviets uh, under Khrushchev agreed to pull out the missiles and the warheads. Uh, the U.S. in return gave a, a bit of a vague pledge of a pledge of not invading Cuba in response to the Soviet pledge. There were also some secret pledges made by the U.S. But it really was it was a crisis. I would I think it's fair to say this was one of the most dangerous periods, perhaps the most dangerous period of the entire long Cold War, the time where the U.S. and the Soviets came the closest to nuclear war. So history uh, has made the Kennedy administration look really good, uh, you know, masterful even in its handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, you quote Kennedy insider and, and famous historian Arthur Schlesinger in your book as saying that the handling of the crisis showed up. Uh, his words, combination of tough toughness, nerve, and wisdom so brilliantly controlled, so matchlessly calibrated that it dazzled the world. Uh, was the Kennedy administration really that good, that masterful, that brilliant at handling this crisis? The, the, the funny thing about that quotation, and I, we don't actually write this in, 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 in the book, but um, I remember hearing a recording of a conversation between President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, where Bobby was telling Jack, you know, the Republicans think we're up to something again, that we're we're always in charge, we always have a master plan, we, we carry it out seamlessly, and they both just started chuckling, giggling at the thought of having been so masterful that it really sort of scared the Republicans. And they were laughing because they knew that they had not always been masterful. Frankly, no president has ever always masterful. And in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, I'll give you my response, and I think that my co-author Max Holland would agree. During the so-called 13 days period, I, I am actually very much impressed with the uh, steady nerves and, and much of the judgment, or most of the judgment, of President Kennedy and the sort of the, his openness to diverse advisors, and he, he made some tough calls, and it was, it was a, an extremely difficult crisis, and, and I would give him, for that intense period of time, some pretty high marks. But the Kennedy administration, President Kennedy himself and his brother, who was sort of chief 
in some ways chief operating officer for the administration, they were very much looking ahead to the 1964 election. And they wanted to present this sort of story that Schlesinger gave in his book, that the whole process in the weeks, months leading up to the crisis and during the intense crisis itself, and then the negotiating and the explanation of the crisis afterwards, it was all just a masterful performance. Well, the reality is that for those, I would say, a couple of months before the, the, the 13 days period of sort of mid to late October, it was not seamless. It was not masterful. It was messy. Relations between the White, I would say on the one hand, the White House and the State Department, and then especially CIA over how to carry out intelligence gathering operations uh, against Cuba were, uh, I mean, there was a lot of anger. So in fact, there was this thing called a photo gap, which is to say that from August 29th, 1962 through October 14th, 1962, which is about, you know, a five or six week period, uh, we did not do the sort of uh, surveillance, the visual uh, surveillance, using U-2 aircraft to do the photography. It just, uh, there were struggles, distrust between the CIA and the White House. State Department were fearful of another so-called U-2 incident. Now, most students of American history will, will be aware that in May 1960, uh, an American U-2 aircraft was shot down by the Soviet Union, and it provoked all sorts of uh, complications in, in terms of U.S.-Soviet relations. This, so, was the, this was the Francis Gary Powers shoot-down. Exactly. And it really, I prefer to say that for Dwight Eisenhower, it sort of ruined the last seven or eight months of the Eisenhower presidency because he had had high hopes for improving relations with the Soviets. So all kinds of complications and problems flowed out of that U-2 incident. So the White House, the State Department in uh, late summer, early fall 1962 did not want a U-2 incident. So on the one hand, they knew that the Soviets were putting more men and material, material equipment uh, into Cuba, but they really did not believe that the Soviets would put strategic missiles, missile, missiles that could fly from Cuba to the U.S., nuclear-armed strategic missiles. They just didn't think they would do it, so they did not, they, meaning, uh, for example, uh, George Bundy, President Kennedy's national security advisor, Dean Russ, the Secretary of State, they did not want to have aggressive U-2 surveillance of Cuba, so there was a, there was a meeting on September 10th, where there was a, an overflight of the western end of Cuba proposed, uh, but rejected in this advice. Now, the president was not there, but, but others like the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, those are sort of level of people. As, as it happens, however, the director of Central Intelligence, John McCone, was not, he had remembered having a long honeymoon. His director was there. I that uh, perhaps if McCone had been there, McCone was a real tough guy. Uh, maybe that meeting would have played out differently. His death was there. In any case, the decision was made not to do a true overflight over the west and the end of Cuba so that we might uh, what was happening. Because September, like, what a busy month for the Soviets in Cuba. So anyway, it wasn't until eventually uh, October uh, 14th that there was an overflight. So we did go a shocking number of weeks with, without seeing what was happening, 
uh, especially on the western end of Cuba, the so-called business end of Cuba. Uh, fortunately, when McCone got honeymoon and you know sort of figured out that there had happened, he he had to push the president and others really hard to finally get uh, permission for one flight, this one flight over the western end of Cuba, and there, there were the missile sites uh, being constructed. I mean, it was really a tremendous shock to most people in the intelligence establishment, but especially over at the State Department at the White House, because they thought that this sort of thing would not have been done by the Soviets, and it was being done. And this, among other things, not only did this create a crisis between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, this created a huge political problem for the Kennedy White House, because they were caught unawares. There had been this photo gap, and it became important to the president and Bobby Kennedy and others uh, close to the president to make the story go away. To make the story go away. Yeah, the photo gap part of that story, go away. To so re reduce their political vulnerability. Well, we'll, we'll get to that in, in a minute, but a couple things you, you mentioned there I want to maybe explore for a moment or two. Um, you want to talk a little bit about the relationship between the director of Central Intelligence, uh, John McCone, and the rest of the administration. Uh, McCone was a Republican. Uh, Kennedy was a Democrat, and I was um, I was quite surprised and shocked at some of the, shall we just politely say, earthy language that you quote President Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy using uh, about their director of central intelligence. You want to talk a little bit about that re relationship and, and how that may have, have played into this? Yes. President Kennedy felt humiliated by the Bay of Pigs incident. He was angry at some people in his administration, angry, disappointed in some people at the CIA and in the military. Uh, on top of that, though, he felt, you know, he felt he had looked weak and indecisive to many, many Americans. So it became imp politically important to have, well, someone with a, with a real tough Cold Warrior kind of an image as director of the Central Intelligence. And John fit the bill. Now, he had worked in the Truman administration, but more prominently in the Eisenhower administration at the Atomic Energy Commission. And McCone was always a person who sort of defined his, his, his work in administration very broadly. I mean, he may be in charge of AEC or CIA, but, but he was someone who was going to freely pronounce to a president and other advisors what should be done. So McCone was a very self confident, very tough administrator. He, he was, was self-identified as a Republican. Uh, and so the appointment of McCone gave President Kennedy political cover. Uh, now, I say that John McCone generally did have good access to President Kennedy, and I would say he had the attention of President Kennedy, but he also annoyed the hell out of President Kennedy. Uh, and, and, and I think it's fair to say that the president and others uh, tended to discount. You know, when McCone was warning, he was one of the very few people in Washington, D.C., who was warning in August and September and early October 1962 that he thought the Soviets very likely were in, in the process of putting missiles and nuclear warheads into Cuba. Uh, the president tended to discount that because they said, well, that, you know, he's this, this sort of relentless cold warrior who always thinks that the Soviets are up to the worst. So the relationship was not great. I mean, he turned out right, but the president, it, it's clear the president resented him for that. And, and, and all the more so, in the aftermath of the missile crisis, 
you know, congressional committees and subcommittees wanted to know, well, so what's the story? What's been happening in recent months? And uh, was there a delay, by the way, in finding out what the Soviets were up to? And, you know, what were you doing, Mr. McCone? McCone, you know, he, he, he did tell these members of Congress and certain elite members of the news media, speaking off the record usually, he said, well, you know, I, that I thought that the Soviets were, were very likely, almost certainly placing missiles into Cuba that would be nuclear armed. And so, in effect, what McCone was saying to them is, I and most people at the White House and the State Department were wrong. Well, that was that was more or less accurate. But, you know, Kennedy resented, as presidents tend to do, what seemed to have been disloyalty on McCone's part for saying such a thing around D.C. And it got back to Kennedy. Newspaper columnists wrote it up. The recording, you referred to Kennedy using some harsh, earthy language about McCone. I love playing that recording for my students because... Think about it. It is a president talking about his director of central intelligence, John McCone. It's his director, and he says he is stupid. He says he was a horse's ass. He uses some other language I, I won't even repeat, but uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite the conversation. I think it's interesting to note that even as McCone was uh, expressing his concern in the summer of 62 that the Soviets were putting missiles or were going to put missiles into Cuba, uh, not only did they not have the hard evidence, there wasn't any YouTube photography to prove it, uh, but his own analysts at the CIA didn't agree with him. There's a very famous, as you know, national intelligence estimate that came out just before the crisis broke, in which the you know the the, the assembled uh, experts of the intelligence community said the Soviets will never put missiles down. Important point. Well, you know, most people at the at the White House and the State Department were shocked. That's true, but but most people in the intelligence establishment as well were shocked by this. And they, as you say, the famous or infamous National Intelligence Estimate of September 19th, which which said just that. Now McCone was aware of this. It's a funny thing about John McCone as Director of Central Intelligence, who in many ways he he was an outstanding uh, DCI, but but it often seemed that he was out really important things were happening. So the timing of his of his marriage and his honeymoon, and meanwhile, big things, dangerous things are happening in, in, in Cuba and Washington. Uh, and so he knew about this national intelligence estimate, and he, and he let people know that, that he personally dissented from it. But he, it, it, John, John McCone was not typically someone who deferred a lot, but this was an instance that he more or less deferred about this estimate, thinking that, well, you know, I'm... Here, I'm out of town, and then there's a sort of a, a, a national estimates are collective products. So, you know, he sort of let it go through, although he didn't really agree with it. So, you, But you're right. Most analysts, uh, who most so-called Sovietologists, whether they were at CIA or the State Department, thought the Soviets would never do this. Well, they did do it. Before we get into how the administration handled this potentially embarrassing fact that the photo gap is... Can you tell me, I mean, did the photo gap really matter? I mean, we did learn about the missiles. We learned about them before they were operational. The, the U-2 flew on, on October 14th. The next day, the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center found the missiles, and on the 16th, they told the president. Um, right. And it all worked out. So does this really matter, any of it, substantively? Well, I think it does. Sort of the essential point that you've made that, you know, look, we found the U.S. was able to respond to what the Soviets were doing in Cuba, and we brought 
the crisis to a conclusion that essentially worked for the U.S., which is the Soviets did pull out their missiles and warheads. But for me, it's an object of fascination to look back and see the turmoil, the distrust between the CIA and the White House over a period of, of these many weeks. In the of the um, missile crisis, although President Kennedy never admitted to there having been an actual photo gap, occasionally a very few reporters asked about something like that. And he said, well, you know, I suppose we might, you know, what if, if we had figured this out a week earlier? Well, then I don't think it really would have mattered anyway. But, I, well, what if it, what, you know, what if McCone, when he got back from his honeymoon, what if he had, what if his honeymoon had been long? What if he had not pushed as hard as he did when he first got back? What if there had been another, a delay of as much as another week? A delay of another week would have had much more fully operational missiles in Cuba, presumably equipped with the warheads, like ready to go. Then I think, so if there had been a delay of another week, then I think uh, carrying out the diplomacy, which I have to say the president did effectively, but carrying out diplomacy, avoiding nuclear war, facing the pressures, domestic political pressures that Kennedy was facing, because a lot of Kennedy, Kennedy, like, go ahead and, like, let's launch an airstrike now. I think all of those pressures would have been worse and more difficult if we had found out even a week later. So the way that I would put it is that there was a very significant, messy, ongoing intelligence failure, which the U.S. government fixed just in time, largely due to John McCone. Now, I have to say, I sort of fault McCone. I've said this to my students sometimes, like, you know, with all of the, the big dangerous things that he and everyone knew were going on with Cuba, could you just have done like an eight or nine day honeymoon? You know, do you really have to go off for weeks on the end to the south of France? So I fault him for that. But look, it's it's when John McCone got back and he figured out, you know, that look, we haven't really been surveilling western end of Cuba the way that we should have been for weeks. I mean, in a, in a, I'm sort of oversimplifying, but basically, you know, he went to the White House. He spoke to people like the president and, and the national security advisor and, and in a sense said, look, I cannot tell you with confidence what's going on in this part of Cuba. So McCone pushing hard when he did led the president to authorize one flight. We found these missiles, I would say, just in time. If there was a week, delay of another week or so, this whole missile crisis would have played out. It would have, it would have been a more dangerous event than it, than it was. And certainly it was plenty dangerous as it did turn out. Okay, so we had this roughly six-week gap during which we weren't looking at Cuba, or at least at the right parts of Cuba, weren't aggressively surveilling Cuba. And the crisis happens, and it is uh, ultimately resolved in a reasonably satisfactory way. Certainly there's no nuclear war, and certainly the, the Soviet weapons leave Cuba eventually. Uh, one of the fascinating aspects of your book, it's sort of the second half of the book, is your discussion of how the administration, and, and I don't think there's a better word than cover-up, uh, covers up uh, the existence and the significance of this gap through any number of, of obfuscations and, and, and omissions and, and even some flat-out lies. You want to just tell us, there were so many people and so many institutions to whom they were, they were promulgating these stories of varying degrees of falseness. Do you want to just summarize some of that for us? What, what does this cover-up consist of? Well, for example, I'll, I'll start with the House. There were um, 
subcommittees, especially House Appropriations and Armed Services, you know, they're supposed to more or less monitor what what uh, what the, the intelligence agencies were doing, what the Defense Department was doing. And so there were members of these committees who had sort of actually figured out that there had been some kind of photo gap. By the phrase photo gap became a part of the, 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 the parlance of that era, early 1960s, because there was this handful of, of some members of Congress, especially outside, especially Republicans, who figured this out. Like, we, we seem to have gone weeks here. There was a photo gap. They were asking the question that they were saying, was there a photo gap? And at the testimony, especially Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, because you, uh, Mark, you used the word obfuscation or some other polite words. And then you said sometimes it's just like they're just lying. And I have to say with McNamara, because he was very directly asked about, about, you know, was there a period of time where we simply were not doing aerial surveillance the western end of Cuba for weeks on end? And, and, and McNamara would say, well, if, if there was any delay at all, it was strictly because of the weather. There was no photo gap. Absolutely, positively, there was no photo gap. I would say that McNamara some of those members of the House of Representatives. McNamara lied, you say? I would say so. Now, when he was before some House committees and subcommittees and, and ultimately the Senate as well, it's interesting, uh, it was really some House members who figured out this photo gap thing and who pushed hard and were just sort of stonewalled by the Kennedy administration. On the Senate side, there, there actually was an investigation of the performance of the intelligence agencies by a subcommittee of Senate Armed Services Committee. It was called the Preparedness Subcommittee, headed by Senator John Stennis. And I, those senators, they just never figured out this photo gap story. They just never really figured it out. You know, in order to have a successful congressional investigation, you know what? You have to really push hard. You have to be pretty, I don't ruthless, but relentless. And that was not John Stennis. I mean, he had a good full-time staff person assisting him, and there were some other, at least part-time staffers, but really not enough to permit the preparedness subcommittee to figure out something like the photographs. So they, they, they just basically missed the story, even though the, the subcommittee had some, some good, strong members, Senator Margaret Chase Smith of Maine, a Republican, by the way, was very suspicious of the Kennedy administration, of the president, uh, but but she really did not figure this out either. The Preparedness Subcommittee, John McCone. I'm not going to say that John McCone lied outright to, or, or exactly, I wouldn't use that word, but he certainly did engage in obfuscations. You know, he and others would say, well, you know, there were problems of weather, and yeah, that led to some delays. By the way, a, a particular kind of distortion that McCone and McNamara and others engaged in was to say something that was sort of half. When, when, when intelligence were proposing on September 10th, a, a, a flight over all of the, the western end of Cuba, um, the, the, the quote compromise, and it, it, it came from Secretary of State Dean Rusk. He said, Well, look, let's do these sort of peripheral, we'll do four peripheral flights, sort of fly along the sort of the outside borders, you know, along the coast of Cuba. You know, and, and those flights, they were done, they were done, you know, in, at some point uh, along the way after the 10th meeting. But it's just not the same. They just, you just can't take the same kind of pictures as when you literally fly over the land surface. So they would say, Oh, we had flights and we had these other flights and they just really uh well obfuscation is a pretty good word for what McCone engaged and I find it funny because 
in a lot of ways, I have admiration for John McCone as a director of central intelligence. But my is that ultimately he gave in to the pressure from the Kennedy White House to mislead Congress to protect to protect the narrative the Kennedy White House was promoting, which is that in the weeks before and the weeks during the missile crisis, there was a kind of a seamless, wonderful, massive performance. That's one of the things I found particularly interesting about the book is uh, that McCone, though he'd been arguing for overflights, aggressive overflights of Cuba directly over Cuba, um, and though he personally believed that the Soviets were probably going to be putting missiles into Cuba, so he'd been much more right than anybody, uh, both in his you know analysis and also in his prescriptions about on a collect intelligence collection side what to do about it, that he did participate so much in this obfuscation and cover-up. I mean, he he could at least potentially have 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 made himself out to look like the hero here, uh, and yet mostly he didn't try to do that. He did it some, he did it quietly off the record, uh, and at a certain point when newspaper columnists were producing stories about how McCone had been right, the Kennedy White House and State Department had been wrong, really there were some, uh, there were some quiet conversations, or not so quiet, between McCone and McGeorge Bundy, the National Security Advisor, and eventually a conversation between McCone and the President about, were basically is there like, are you with us, Mr. McCone, or not? There was one particular conversation that McCone was scheduled to have and did have with President Kennedy in mid-March of 1963. And what's going on is that increasingly it had seemed for a couple of weeks, it had seemed to the president, to Bobby Kennedy, to McGeorge Bundy, that McCone really was not being a loyal member of the administration. And so there were uh, some difficult conversations between Bundy and McCone, between Bobby Kennedy and McCone. I don't, we, we never know all of the details of all of that. But we do know that uh, eventually, by the time McCone had his key meeting with the president, he was on board. He agreed with the president. Well, it probably doesn't matter precisely when these pictures got taken. After all, if we'd gotten them a week earlier, we still wouldn't have been able to persuade the allies, the NATO allies, for example, or out the Western Hemisphere of the seriousness of the situation. So the pictures, when we got them, McCone finally sort of agreed to go along with the story like, it doesn't matter. So let's just forget, we won't even mention the fact that there was a, a photo gap. So McCone got on board, and then the question becomes, well, why did he do that? I mean, he again, he was a Republican, um, he felt like a lonely voice in the administration, a lonely voice in Washington, D.C. Uh, Max Hopp, uh, by his own research, persuaded me, I, I think that he's right, and what we say in the book is that McCone had ambitions to become the uh, 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 some higher office, maybe Secretary of State. It was well known, that, or pretty well known, that Dean Russ would almost certainly leave after the first term. So perhaps uh, McCone, it seems likely McCone had ambitions for movement upward in the Kennedy administration. So you can only go so far in angering your president, and he'd already gone a long way to do that. So McCone backed off. Last question here, uh, and that is, why has this book not been written before? Are you and uh, Max Holland asking questions that nobody had ever thought to look into? I'm, well, you are, just certainly. Uh, but were there also records that were newly available? Do you want to talk a little bit about how this project 
happened to be done by David Barrett and Max Holland and not somebody 20 years ago? Well, first I'll say, in fairness, one, one, one might say Max Holland and David Barrett, because Max began work on this subject matter first back, I think it was back around 2003 or so, there were some significant uh, documents, CIA documents that were declassified, which permitted a much better understanding of, of this photogap problem. And so the early stages of, the, of this project were actually done by Max. That is, he wrote some articles for some of the uh, significant uh, intelligence uh, journals about the photo gap. Um, and I became interested in that. And Max, Max had a real interest in the Congress and the CIA and the presidency and the CIA. Uh, but he knew that I had just been steeped in Congress and the CIA. We had some very interesting, enjoyable conversations about this photo gap thing. And he thought that Perhaps we could do, initially we were talking about maybe doing an article or two, sort of beyond what he had first done on his own. And the aftermath of the photo gap and the congressional investigations and the, a kind of a cover-up by the Kennedy White House, we realized, like, well, this, we, we can't deal with all of this in an article. And I called up the editor at Texas A&M University Press, the acquisitions editor with whom I'd worked before, and I, you know, I fairly short book project, and we I described it to her, and I said, it was a kind of or an almost naive sounding question, I said, do you think that's too short of a book? She said, well, no. She laughed. No, we do publish short books, David. Just because your books have all been five to nine hundred pages doesn't mean we couldn't do something that's a hundred and fifty pages. We did a lot more research. We, we both went through the Stennis papers in Mississippi on separate trips. I went up to Maine to look at the papers of Margaret Chase Smith, and they are quite good there. Uh, more research by both of us at National Archives. So we really researched this subject. In the absence of Max having done those initial, which somewhat breaking articles about gap, so that we, we say a whole lot in addition, uh, the book has a whole lot more in addition to what was in his original, again, rather path-breaking articles. And I'm delighted to find some of the materials in the Congress and, and he'll be able to describe these investigations. To he and I did more research at the JFK, the library, the Kennedy Library, up in Massachusetts, and to learn more about the sort of the maneuvering in the Kennedy administration. Again, to have this seamless story of success, and to and to realize the extent to which they really were promoting that uh, by being dishonest about some of the messy details that preceded the missile crisis. I think it's just a really a remarkable piece of work because uh, not a lot of books uh, are able to really delve in an expert way, both into what's going on in the executive branch and a particularly you know difficult part of the executive branch to work on and understand, and that is the intelligence community, and at the same time really bring that same level of, of expertise and nuanced knowledge of, 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 of the Congress. Uh, which is a whole, you know, utterly different world unto itself. So I, I think it really comes together really nicely and is, is a really powerful, uh, a powerful piece of work. And as you say, nice and short and pithy and um, uh, a, a great read. I can honestly say that, which is uh, not true of, of, I would say, most scholarly work. So well done. Congress itself, it's different researching Congress than researching the CA, but Congress is difficult because the papers, so many papers, it has in common with CA. A lot of the records get destroyed, and those that survive get scattered around the country. 
And so it's uh, it's labor intensive researching Congress. It is. Well, you guys, uh, you and Max have done a done a great job, and and I will I will recommend unreservedly to any of our listeners, Blind Over Cuba: The Photo Gap and the Missile Crisis, just published by David Barrett and Max Holland. And uh, David, thank you so much for joining us here at the International Spy Museum. Thanks, Mark. It's been great fun. Thanks. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.